and your dad came to me and he wanted you to know that he was there when Brandon passed and helped him adjust. Brandon was a little confused in the beginning, but your dad helped him understand what was going on. Um, he said, Brandon wanted you to know that you're the best parents he ever could have had, which is the nice, warm, fuzzy thing we like to hear. But along with that came the evidence. He said, your dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen in his bloodstream that causes heart to fail. Mark Ireland, welcome to Passion Harvest. My gosh, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to our conversation. I love all the work you do, and especially your book that we're going to discuss later in the show, um, and your exploration of the afterlife and consciousness beyond death of the physical form. If you don't mind how this all started, or in some way started with the death of your son. Yeah, and even, I guess, backing up before that, I grew up with an unusual father. He was a psychic and a medium. Uh, at a time when that wasn't really a, a thing. <laughs> yeah, It wasn't really acknowledged by people. There's much more interest in that today and acceptance as well. So as a kid, I grew up with that. So I had this confidence that, okay, wow, we're, there is more than just physical existence. <clears throat> and some part of us goes on after physical death. <clears throat> that said, I didn't follow in my father's footsteps. He always said I was psychic. Uh, but my idea of what a psychic was, was him. And that was way beyond anything else I'd ever seen from anyone else. Um, and I had little flashes of things here and there, but in, in general terms, I chose a different path and we were different people too. I was more, I guess, conservative or careful and cautious. And my dad was more live for the moment kind of person. Um, so I ended up going to college, the university, got my degree, I got married at a young age and we had a couple of children, two boys, and I was plugging along in the corporate world, much like you, um, and basing a lot of my life on corporate achievement and advancement there. But uh, when my youngest son, Brandon, was 18 years old, he went on a hike on the McDowell Mountains in Scottsdale, Arizona, which was right behind our home. And before he went, I just had this ominous feeling and I tried to talk him out of going, but uh, it was unsuccessful. And he says, we're going, dad, just like stop worrying. Um, and to make a long story short, later that day, we were called back and um, found out that he had uh, succumbed on the side of the mountain and passed away. We didn't know what had happened um, until several days later. Uh, his best friend, Stu, had tried to revive him while he was on the mountain, and he was unsuccessful. But he explained to me that Brandon, uh, my 18-year-old son, had complained about his heart beating fast and his arms being kind of numb before he laid down and passed away. Uh, now, by this point in time, my uh, father had been gone for a number of years, but my uncle had similar abilities. So I had reached out to him right after I learned of Brandon's passing and asked if he could get anything for me. It was about three days later that we connected when I was in the mortuary. And um, by cell phone, we chatted and he said, hey, Mark, last night I tried to connect. I just couldn't get anything. But this morning I got up and was doing my morning meditation, which is how I start every day. And your dad came to me and he wanted you to know that he was there when Brandon passed and helped him adjust. Brandon was a little confused in the beginning, but your dad helped him understand what was going on. Um, he said, Brandon wanted you to know that you're the best parents he ever could have had, 
which is the nice, warm, fuzzy thing we like to hear. But along with that came the evidence. He said, your dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen in his bloodstream that causes heart to fail. Two days after that, I talked to the physician who conducted the autopsy, and she said that Brandon's death was uh, caused by a severe asthma attack that drove his blood oxygen levels down and caused cardiac arrest. So essentially, my uncle gave me the cause of death before the autopsy. And that was really one of the very early things that brought me back into this field that my father had lived in all those years. And I'd not really, I'd always viewed from a distance. Uh, and I kind of plunged back into it for a number of reasons, um, but partially out of interest, partially out of a, a desire to connect with my son, and also to learn more uh, to potentially help other people. And that's kind of where it went. Well, a big congratulations on your new book. It's amazing, The Persistence of the Soul. What happens yeah. when, yay, I've got one too. It's over there. Hold on. <laughs> Here's mine. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. It's available in English in about 11 countries on Amazon now, including Australia and France. Um, so it's pretty much available worldwide, but only in English at this point. Maybe okay. they'll. So what what happens when the physical body dies? What happens? You know, um, I can only speculate because um, if I've been there, which I think I probably have, I don't remember. So um, I go by a couple of things. First off, the descriptions from people who have had near-death experiences means a lot to me. And my father, back when he used to do trance work, he gave an explanation as to uh, what it's like on the other side. And those two things are very congruent. So I think that uh, my dad was onto something with that, uh, with the explanation that came through trance uh, from him. And essentially, I would say it's, I think it's another dimensional reality in which our consciousness continues. Um, it seems to be one where there's a overwhelming feeling of love, like love is just primary in this environment or in that um, dimension of consciousness, where it, uh, a lot of the emotions we feel on Earth, because if you think about it, our brain is filtering stuff and maybe sifting it down. So you're not getting a full expense of everything um, that, that's happening, but it's narrowed down to survival in this world because everything is going through your brain and you're tied to your physical body while you're here. And so once you your consciousness leaves and moves on to the next realm, it's freed from emotions like fear, anger, uh, you know, and, and those kinds of things, I believe. And, and more, it's just an environment that's focused in love and um, kind of a ecstatic state is what I've, what I've heard described by both near-death experiencers, most of them. Um, and then what I said before, too, in terms of my dad's information coming through. And if anyone sat in a meditation and really gotten into a deep state, they may have had a little taste of something like that as well. And, well, in our human terms, terms we talk about heaven. What's your thoughts on heaven? People try and we've always tried to associate words with things that are indescribable, perhaps. Um, my father, and I subscribe to many of the things that he thought, and Others have talked about, you know, maybe there's various planes or uh, dimensional realities. 
So I view life here specifically because it's so challenging, go through pains and trials and suffering. Uh, but you also have the opportunity to show love and show compassion and treat people well in difficult circumstances. So it's an evolutionary process, but not just a biological evolution. It's an evolution of your soul. So as you move on, I think the more advanced folks are at maybe a higher level of vibration, if you will, or some um, description of a higher level of consciousness. And you, you're, you're progressing to those higher levels. Some folks who are hung up, maybe they're, they've not lived a very good life. Uh, they've murdered someone or whatever. They're, I would say, you know, when they go, they're at a lower level. Doesn't mean they can't work up, but it's kind of like, I think you gravitate toward your common bond. So as you, as you leave this, your level of consciousness goes to where it naturally is supposed to be based on your level of development. I've also had it described to me that you can, someone at a higher level can go down or lower their vibration, if, if you will, to communicate with or touch base or try and help those at a lower level. But those at a lower level can't necessarily gravitate up. Now, all of that I'm saying here is speculation, but that's kind of my gut feel for what it's like. How do you view the soul? What is the soul to you? Um, the soul or spirit is the part of you that's eternal. It's consciousness. So there's a lot of research going on today to try and talk about or figure out what consciousness actually is. Materialism, which has kind of dominated academia for a long time, has been just accepted without question as being accurate and true. But there are a lot of things in science that that make it look like that can't be the case, specifically in quantum mechanics. And I'm not a quantum physicist, but I know a couple things. <clears throat> One is the observer effect. And it's been uh, validated numerous times that mind affects matter. Via the double slit experiment and Dr. Mm -hmm. Dean Ray, another recent experiment, validating mind affects matter. Well, how can that be? You know, if matter is primary and your brain and body are just a byproduct of matter development, um, then that wouldn't make any sense. So consciousness has to be primary. Maybe consciousness and God are the same thing. Um, maybe that's just the uh, ultimate expression of consciousness at the highest level is what God is. So, um, I, you know, my perspective is that in some way consciousness creates physical reality, maybe out of a desire to evolve and experience so therefore, um, the material came into existence as an opportunity or a platform by which consciousness could have experiences and go through a process of understanding itself. When we transition from our physical body, what are your thoughts on reincarnation? You know, um, I think that something along the lines of reincarnation happens. I don't know that we understand exactly what it is or how it works, but um Dr. Ian Stevenson, who founded the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, studied it for a long, long time. He would go to typically remote areas um, for tribal peoples who didn't have any, you know, TV or radio or Internet or any of that. And he'd hear stories, you know, from a young child in a in a in a group that would report having lived another life as another individual in a in another village, you know, hundreds of miles away. So he would go investigate these and find out, you know, check out the other uh, particular village that had been reported and said, you know, um, was there somebody by this name here? And were they about this old? And did they die this way? 
and say if they've been stabbed or something, they might find on the child like a, a wound mark or something. And um, the, the villagers might often corroborate the information that the child provided. So that uh, that was an interesting you know, bit of research done that's supportive of that. And usually I think the findings indicate that young children would typically report this, but by age six, seven, they tend to forget. So that's, you know, maybe why we as adults don't remember past lives because you you move on and you kind of shut that stuff off, especially given our society and how unpopular it may be. Now, in my book, my newest book, Persistence of the Soul, I actually share an account about uh, a reincarnation story that my dad had a discussion he had with me when I was just three years old, uh, where I recounted all these things, like he's rapid firing questions at me and I'm just explaining, you know, uh, what, how long I lived, how many brothers and sisters I had and all this kind of stuff. So it was uh, rather interesting. Um, and now today I don't remember any of that, <laughs> but that coincides with what Stevenson said about um, young children having these memories, but them fading over time. Have you had any um, communications with your son who has transitioned? Well, yeah, tons of them. <laughs> That's okay. a lot of what's in the first book, uh, Soul Shift, uh, has a number of accounts of those. And I'll, I'll share a few with you. Yeah, um, for those that haven't read it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and back to reincarnation real quick. I was just mm -hmm. going to say, and the other part about it that makes sense to me is that if if the purpose of life or physical life is to go through a refinement process of the soul, it's pr probably hard to think that you would do that in one life. You would need more opportunities to continue that. And if you screwed up and you lived a bad life, um, you probably have to have an opportunity to to rectify that. If the other side, if the spiritual realm is kind of one that has, you don't really have any needs and it's a peaceful environment, you don't really have the challenges, you know? So this world, I think, is unique in that way that it presents these challenges that offer you the opportunity to grow. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, back to uh, some of the stories of connection and, and evidence. So I shared one about my uncle uh, right after my son had passed. I think even before that, like the very first thing that I had happen was... Um, I wanted a direct connection with my son. So I went into a darkened room, which is actually a walk-in closet, shut the door and sat down and tried to meditate. And I'm not a great meditator, but in this case, I was able to quiet my mind pretty much. And while I was sitting there um, in, in my mind's eye, I saw his face go by smiling and glowing like joyful. That felt good. But right behind that came a symbol and it was a cross with an oval loop at the top. And I'd seen those, but I didn't really know what they were, or what they symbolized. So me being somewhat analytical, I had to go to Google after, after the experience and look it up. And I found out it was the, uh, an Egyptian Ankh, this cross of human history. I think it's about 5,000 years old. The lower portion representing physical life and the oval loop representing eternal life. So what I got was a coded message from my son, at least I believe that, that tells me he's joyful, he's in eternal life. Um, and I think the value of that for me was having to go look up the meaning and not knowing the meaning. If I already knew the meaning, then you could you could assert that, OK, well, my subconscious mind just gave me something to feel good. Um, three weeks after his passing, I was watching the news uh, in on the Phoenix NBC affiliate 
and they were showing a, a study that was being done at the University of Arizona at the time involving mediums doing readings for people under blinded conditions. And the medium that they showed in the clip was Alison Dubois, who's a big name now because of the network show Medium that was loosely based on her life. But she was undiscovered at that time. Um, and then she had to read for people she couldn't see directly and they couldn't speak to her. She just had to come forth with information that came to her. And then they debrief with the people who had been the sitters afterwards. And I was really impressed because the things she gave were very specific and ended up being very significant to the folks. And there was not just a few of them, there were a lot of these kinds of statements. So I thought to myself, gee, I'd love to um, have a reading with her someday and I'd love to be in that lab someday. Well, the very next day, I got a call from a man named Jerry Concer, who was friends with my father. And he says to me, Mark, I know what you've been through. Um, and I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name is Allison Dubois. And here's a phone number you can call to get an appointment. So that's what I knew synchronicity was at work. And my dad probably was helping line things up for me. Um, and lo and behold, I also ended up as a sitter in that lab a year later for a Discovery Channel episode um, or excerpt. So um, fast forwarding, um, I'll skip forward to the uh, the Alison Dubois reading just because of a couple of things that were pretty impressive. Two weeks before that reading, someone gave me a box filled with eight and a half by 11 type pages. And it was, it was a manuscript, an unpublished manuscript. And it said, Your Psychic Potential, A Guide to Psychic Development by Richard Ireland, dated 1973. I said, well, what is this? He goes, well, it's a book that your dad put together. I said, how did you get it? He said, well, you were out of state at the time when he was getting ready to pass and he gave it to me for safekeeping. I said, well, that that was 12 years ago. Why are you giving it to me now? And he says, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. At two weeks after that, I have the reading with Alison Dubois. And one of the first things she shares with me is I've got your father here and uh, he's showing me a book, but I feel it's his book. And he's handing it to you to take forward. Does that make sense to you? And I'm like, yeah, it does. And I've since actually been able to get the book published. So it's been out for a while now. That was pretty impressive. And she gave me a number of uh, validations pertaining to my son, one of which was a feeling of drowning, like a struggle to breathe. And um, when I talked to the physician who had done the autopsy, she said, that his lungs had expanded in an effort to capture oxygen and almost touching in the middle. She said that only happens in cases of drownings or severe asthma attacks. So the sensation Allison had was exactly correct in terms of what had actually taken place. She also shared um, a congratulations to me and my wife on behalf of our 25th anniversary. And we had just had that about a month or six weeks before that reading. And she didn't know anything about me. I came in there pretty much with her blind to, to who I was, other than she knew generically my dad had been a psychic. Um, now, I think one of the most significant uh, direct connection events that happened was, uh, well, let me go back to two weeks after Brandon passed, I met with an intuitive. She was the first intuitive I'd met with. And one thing she said with me stuck, and I actually recorded it so that I wouldn't forget what she had said. But she says, I think you're going to see Brandon at your bedside at about six months after his passing. Well, go forward six months. We had planned a cruise to celebrate Brandon's high school graduation. Since he wasn't there physically, we took his best friend, Stu, the man, the young man I mentioned earlier. 
and our older son, Stephen. We were gone seven days. Before we left, Brandon was a bassist, so we loaned his bass guitar to a friend named James Linton. James was a musician who had his own in-home studio. He was a guitar player and a singer and a composer. We'd met James because he actually had been on the mountain the day Brandon passed. He got to the group too late. He tried to help, but he was frustrated because he couldn't help because Brandon was already gone. So anyhow, here we are six months later. Uh, we had loaned James Brandon the bass guitar, and we just got back from the cruise. And while we're uh, just unpacking, getting you know settled back in the house, my wife's sitting at the foot of our bed. And suddenly she feels a presence next to her, and she sees Brandon has a shadow figure out of her peripheral vision. She knows it's him. She feels it. The very next day, we get a call from James Linton. And he says, Susie, I've got to share something with you, but I don't really know how to share it. And she thought he'd broken the bass guitar or something, but he hadn't. He said, well, I was recording a song in the studio and I felt a presence in there with me. And I saw a shadow figure out of my peripheral vision. I also saw flashes of white light um, and I thought I was hallucinating. So I went and got something to eat. I drank some water. I took a shower. But each time I came back, it got stronger and stronger until finally I said, okay, Brandon, what do you want? At that point, he felt guided to redo the lyrics of this song he was working on and redo the bass line. And at the end, uh, the song produced was called The Other Side. He said, it's the best song I've ever written, but I didn't write it. Oh my gosh, I've got goosebumps. That's just so, so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to ask you about mediumship. I mean, gosh, all these incredible symbols and synchronicities. How how does one, I mean, I can't imagine myself, how does one not get over but move through the grief of losing a child? For those of the um, audience that may be experiencing that. Sure. I'd say my wife and I moved, we healed much quicker than most. And that's probably for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was having this kind of connection and assurance that there's life after death. Um, but I'd say through my work with the Helping Parents Heal organization and seeing other parents come through that, starting out in a, a deep, dark hole and ending up in a much happier, more uplifted state. I can tell you the things I've observed that help them heal. And I've actually named it the five pillars of healing grief. The first pil pillar is something that hopefully people have, but not everybody does. And that's support from family and friends. Unfortunately, some family members or friends may shy away from talking about the child when the bereaved person typically wants to talk about their child. They want to discuss happy memories or anything to do with the child. So hopefully the family is there to support them and, and listen to them and talk with them. Um, again, that's not always the case. So the second pillar is support from and meeting with people who have been through the same thing. And that's one of the ways we come in as an organization because we offer a platform where they can meet other people who have experienced the exact same thing and then build new friendships and support each other. Um, and especially if you don't have that first one, the second pillar can be very, very helpful. The third pillar is for people, and they're not going to maybe be able to do this immediately, but after they've healed to a certain extent, to provide service to others in some way. That could be, you know, starting an affiliate helping parents heal chapter. It could be 
uh, starting a foundation. A lot of the parents start foundations that are based on fundraising for something to do with how their child died, whether that be a specific type of cancer or other disease. Oh, you just froze up, so you'll have to edit that part out. I can't hear you now. My, I'm back. Sorry, my microphone was off while you're talking. Oh, no problem. So I'll just pick up. Uh, I'll just pick up where I was. Okay. Yeah. So about the uh, setting up some kind of organization, whether it's for a disease or. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. So, I'm so sorry. This doesn't normally happen. Okay. So, well, and spirit sometimes messes with technology too, yeah. electronics. So anyhow, I'll start right here. So um, whether that be an organization or a foundation to support other people, whether that be to help a family, whether that be, I know a woman who started an organ donation organization because her son had received a transplant, um, you know, that last, made extended his life. So some form of service, because when you give to others, it comes back to you. It helps you heal. It may not seem like that on the surface level, but it really works. Um, and it makes your life more meaningful, too. You're doing more than just sitting there, you know, feeling bad. Uh, you're actually performing something constructive in the world. The next one's a little bit tougher. And that is to, I divide this into kind of two things. One is uh, release feelings of guilt. A lot of parents will say, I could have done this. I should have done that. And, and that may be more times than not, not really true. It's, it's a situation where they're blaming themselves because of the way, either the way the child died or just think, you know, they could have stopped it in some way. And in most cases, that's not true. It's just like assigning a, a self blame for something. The other part of that is uh, retaining uh, feelings of anger and not forgiving someone else who may have had some role of responsibility, whether that be through an accident or something like that. Um, if you harbor those feelings and you don't forgive, it just hurts you. It, it really can just uh, continue down that path of, of someone uh, feeling bad because they're not releasing that and they're holding on to that and it hurts them. It's not an easy thing, but it, but it is one of those steps that helps someone move on to the next level. And then the last one is the hope element, and that is being open to um, information, evidence that supports the, the idea that there's an afterlife. And that may come from reading books to start with, and then having experiences to, through either direct experiences through a meditative process, visiting an evidential medium. And that's, you know, if they do that, it's very important to go to someone that's trustworthy. And I, I can explain more about that later or through some other process. There's a there's an EMDR process that some therapists will use to draw somebody into an altered state where sometimes they can connect with their loved one as well. So that hope out. You froze again, so I'm not sure how much of that you got. I got it, but this is so embarrassing because this never normally happens. I I don't know what to say. It's um, it'll be fine. I can it's easily okay. cut it out. Well, I, I. What's the last thing you heard me say? 
Uh, you were talking about just the hope element. Talk okay, about interrupt. Or- talk about interrupting your interview. What I'll say is, I'll say is, I'm going to say, Mark, you're doing such incredible work. How can people connect with you? Where's the best place? I'm, I'm sorry. What was the last thing you said? You're doing such incredible work. Where is the best place for people to connect with you? Oh, okay. Um, so uh, you heard all the everything about the hope element. Did I finish yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and feed me with the next question. Oh, so do you have a, is there a website? I know you mentioned the name of it, but is there a website for people to connect with you? And I will leave a link sure. below in the show notes as well. Great. Um, yes. My website is markirelandauthor.com. That's Mark with a K, Ireland like the country, author. So it's all a string of letters, markirelandauthor.com. And uh, right there, you can not only see what I have in terms of my books, I have a media page with other interviews. I have the Discovery Channel clip on there. I have a documentary that was done by a couple of Arizona State University students about my story. Um, it's about 25 minutes long, so it's not, you know, it doesn't need up too much of your time. I've got uh, links to other uh, sites that could be helpful. I also have a link to um, videos of my father's psychic demonstrations that people will find interesting, a link to the Helping Parents Heal organization, and a link to a certified medium website that I founded as well, uh, listing about 40 different mediums who over the last nine and a half years have been tested under five blinded test readings and performed statistically well enough to earn certification. Because I'd mentioned earlier how if you want to go to a medium, you need to go to somebody who's been vetted. And these 40 have been vetted. Um, And the reason I started that was after my first book came out, a lot of people were coming to me asking for recommendations. And at that time, I knew maybe half a dozen really good mediums but most of them were celebrity mediums with long wait lists. And some of them charged a lot because it was their sole way of making a living. And I thought to myself, there have to be more people out there who have these abilities that are good enough to be trustworthy for folks, but they're just undiscovered. So I put the program together and people would come to me for testing and go through the test process. And and as a result, you know, I did find, uh, I found about 40 of them over the last like nine and a half years who were able to pass that certification process. It doesn't guarantee somebody a good reading, but it greatly in, enhances the, uh, the the odds that they will get a good reading. That's an incredible wealth of information. Again, I will leave a link below in the show notes. How, how do mediums connect with the non-physical? Well, um, it's through basically the psychic capacity. So psychic phenomena can be used like person-to-person telepathy. I think the best description, the most commonly uh, assumed way that this works is it's a form of telepathy with the deceased uh, where they may get images um, from a deceased person that are meaningful to the sitter. They may get um, sounds or audio that could either come as a form of an actual physical hearing, but more often like an idea that comes through, like it's audio in their mind uh, is how it's been described to me. I've had my own um, experiences with this, you know, not like I'm dedicated to trying to become a medium or anything, but I'll give you a quick story that kind of illustrates to me what it feels like or felt like, at least to me, because they all have different modes of ability where some have things more visual, some more auditory, uh, some more sense of feeling, uh, clairsentience, 
Um, but in, in the case that I will share with you, I was uh, for a three-year stint going to a place called the Golden Gate Spiritualist Church in San Francisco, California, as a, being invited there to speak. And each time I brought along a, a medium friend of mine, Tina Powers from Tucson, Arizona, who's very, very gifted. Well, one of the times we went there, she said to me, Mark, I think you're going to get a message. Will you share it with the congregation? And I said, if I get something, sure, I will. I didn't really expect it, you know, but she kept harping on me about this. Like, Mark, you promise you'll do this? And I said, sure. And even the day we arrived at the church, as we're walking in, she goes, Mark, do you promise to share any message you might get? And I said, yes, Tina, I'll share it. <laughs> so this church actually was founded in 1924 by a woman named Florence Becker. And she, by all accounts, was very similar to my father and her abilities. Uh, she passed in 1970. So she had been long gone from the church, but you know, it, it had gone on without her after her passing. So that particular day, I go to the church. We're about a half hour before we're supposed to start. I sit down in their healing room. So they have all these people in chairs getting laying on of hands healing. And I just sit on this bench to an organ or a piano and try to quiet my mind. While sitting there, my mind went blank, which is very unusual for me. And while it was blank, a name popped in and it was Max. Now, I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. It just came to me like an idea would. Right after I got Max, immediately I got Maxine. I thought, oh, maybe it's Maxine and not Max. But it's, you know, for me, this was very valuable because I understood through direct experience what this is like. And that those names, like, it came like an idea or a memory kind of thing. It just popped in. And I, so I didn't know if there was anything relevant to them or not. And I could see now why Tina encouraged me to share whatever I got because I was hesitant because it's like, did I just imagine that? So I got up, I give my talk. And at the end I say, okay, Tina made me promise if I got anything to share it with you, do the names Max or Maxine mean anything to anyone here? And the pastor, his name is Dell, his jaw dropped that he said, well, Max and Maxine were twins born to the church founder, Florence Becker. Uh, they were still delivered, stillborn, and they grew up on the other side in spirit. He says, I think we know who is here right now. And he said, that is a secret known only to a few longtime church members. Um, and then he took me upstairs and showed me a painting that I believe was done by Florence Becker. It was a landscape uh, painting and it had this winding road. And he said, see those two little figures at the end of the road? That's Max and Maxine. So it was pretty remarkable to me because even one of those names aren't that common. I mean, the name Max, I never hear it in the United States. Or Maxine, I've, I think I've known one Max in my life and one Maxine ever, and uh, to have them both and both be that significant was was pr pretty crazy. But I think that illustrates at least for me how it works. And uh, again, for other people, it may work in different ways. But I think the deceased can somehow drop these things into our conscious awareness so they're expressed uh, if we're open to receiving them and sharing them. No, that's that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and yes, I, I believe in some on some level we do all experience this, but we think we're weird or strange or don't want to share it or don't want pe other worry what other people think. Um, so um, that was that was great. I know you also talk about fraudulent mediums and how to right. recognize them. What would be your advice for the audience? 
Well, the first thing is you really don't have to worry about them if you go to vetted mediums first, mm -hmm. then you don't even have to go there. So just don't go to anyone who either isn't highly recommended to you by someone you greatly trust or a source like my medium certified medium website. Um, I would say, you know, someone who has a storefront and just a psychic reader or something like that, I wouldn't stop there. You don't know what you're going to get. And really, I ran into a case with a woman whose son had just passed unexpectedly and she we were introduced to her by a therapist and we talked to her about our experiences with mediums well she got impatient and instead of you know coming back and asking for a reference which we'd offered she went to one of the storefront readers and the next thing you know she was being asked uh to pay all this money because her son supposedly had a curse on him and she could relieve the curse with extra money and just a bunch of bogus garbage uh, that was really harmful. So I guess the lesson there is don't go to anyone who has not been vetted or um, that's highly recommended by someone you trust who's a rational thinker. Um, that's my advice. Or or perhaps not an ad you find on Google. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And, and just because somebody's a big name doesn't mean that they're any better than somebody else who's not a big name. Mm. Um, now, I do know some people who are big names that are phenomenal, like Alison DuBois, really, really tremendously gifted. Um, and there, there are many others um, out there who are, but there are big names that are really no better than some of the folks on my list yeah. who charge a lot less and have more availability. No, that's that's wonderful. Um, what's your advice for the audience or tips uh, for people who, what for what, whatever reason, aren't going to mediums or have or would like to continue a relationship with their loved ones in the non-physical? How does one connect with the afterlife? I think the best way initially, and this worked for me, is while in a dream state, because especially when people are grieving heavily, they're so emotionally distraught, it's really hard for them to quiet their mind enough to have the kind of connection they'd like to have. So before going to bed at night, ask in a prayerful way for that connection and ask to be able to remember it the next day. Um, I've had experiences. I had really only one though, since my son passed, that was, I would say an extremely vivid experience, more vivid than waking reality. If you have one of those, it's tremendous. Um, so I would start with that. Uh, another way is for when people can quiet their mind enough is to sit down and try and do a, a silent meditation. You could do a guided meditation too. There are a number of mediums I know like Suzanne Giesman, Suzanne Wilson, who have audio um, meditation tracks that you could probably download uh, for a guided meditation to meet your loved one um, in this middle space, if you will. But without that, you could just try and either have it be completely quiet or have just quiet music in the background. And then just imagine yourself in a setting where your loved one liked to go, whether that be in the woods or at the beach or whatever, and just be there silently waiting and invite them to come to you. And then while there, if you're able to get into the proper state, them um, maybe tapping you physically. Um, and a third for folks who really can't, are having trouble doing that, you could consider a process that was developed by Dr. Alan Botkin uh, using EMDR. He kind of discovered this by mistake. Now he's retired, but I think he's got other practitioners. I don't know who to refer people to, 
But using EMDR, he's been able to get people in an altered state where oftentimes they'll actually have a visitation from their loved one. I spoke to a couple who lives in San Francisco um, who actually went through this, not with Botkin, but with someone else who was a practitioner. And um, the father went first and their son had passed. Uh, the father went first. And he, it took him a long time, but he did get into this altered state. He saw his son and conversed with him. And the son said, mom's not going to be, a, this isn't going to work for mom. I'm just letting you know. And he said, but when you're all done, ask mom about the color code book. So his session's over. Mom goes in. It doesn't work for her. But the dad didn't tell her that beforehand because he didn't want to influence her. Mm. So at the end, he said, do you know anything about a color code book? And she says, oh, yeah, before our son passed, you know, there was this book called the color code book and we were discussing it. And it had to do with the symbolic meaning of different colors uh, relative to, I think, emotions or something like that. So that was pretty phenomenal to have that kind of evidence come out of that, that his visitation was, in fact, real. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to get that information about the color code book, right? Yeah, incredible, incredible. Um, I have to ask you about a secret message left behind from your late sister. Yeah, that's in my new book, The Persistence of the Soul. There's a whole chapter on that. Um, so when we knew she was terminal, I talked to her and I said, hey, Robin, would you like to do something that could prove helpful to other people uh, who have loved ones past? And so she was agreeable to it. And the idea really came from the old Houdini code. So some people may not know that when Harry Houdini, who was a famous magician, before he died, he shared a secret code with his wife, Beatrice. And he said, if anyone can bring through this code, you'll know that I still exist in some other realm. Um, and in fact, a medium named Arthur Ford did deliver that secret message or secret code to the wife, Beatrice. Um, however, all these skeptic debunker types came out of the woodwork and then alleged that, oh, the two of them were in cahoots and just did it as a publicity stunt and, you know, other things they would just rail on. So if you actually Google that today, it, it will say it's never been solved. But in fact, it was solved by Arthur Ford. But so I thought to myself, well, why? Um, what? How could he have done a better experiment where no one could allege fraud? And I thought, well, the problem was that any living person knew the code because then you could say, well, they shared it or spilled it. So what I suggested to my sister was write a message on a piece of paper and put it in a sealed envelope. You seal the envelope and you um, write your initials on the outside. And that's what we did. And then after she passed, we I uh, worked with a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Don Watson, and he since passed. But he was very interested in this, and he helped me facilitate the experiment. We reached out to a number of mediums and asked them if they could connect and get the message. And I don't want to give away the punchline because there's a lot of intrigue built around it. I would say it, um, it's a very interesting chapter, um, and the process of it was really very enjoyable. And I would say the, the beauty of it, too, is an experiment that I'd not heard of anyone try before. And it could lead to other people, you know, trying additional experiments similarly or even refining the protocols a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so without giving it away, I'll just say it's positive. And, and, and yes, me too, but certainly that perhaps, perhaps that evidence that consciousness does survive the physical body. Mm -hmm. Mark, well, yeah, sorry, please go ahead. I'm just going to say that's that's the evidence that I've 
uncovered, mm. you know, it indicates that that's the case. Yeah, incredible, you know, what you're doing for the world on so many levels. Is there anything that you would like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you today on a final note, Mark? Just, um, and I think it kind of alludes to it with some of the things I've shared that I think we're all here for a purpose and we have a path. And sometimes we get discouraged or we want to give up or or whatever. I just think it's important for people to know that uh, we don't live in a completely chaotic universe as you've been taught by academia and skeptics alike, uh, but rather there is a purpose to your life and you're here for a reason. And it's important. It's a privilege to be here, even when it's painful and that it's valuable to continue on and go through to benefit the world and yourself to finish the job that you came here to do. A beautiful way to end the show. Mark Island, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Thanks so much, Lisa. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.